We are, as Willow Park Church, uh, looking at those books in the New Testament that have only one chapter. Um, And this morning, I want to take a look at the third letter of John. Uh, it's, It's a short letter, and I think maybe a verse or two longer than 2 John. You might want to check that. But also a very direct letter and the message that John has to share with this particular church that he's writing to or the situation in the church that he's writing to. But I think it has uh, ramifications for churches in general, which I believe is why the Spirit of God felt the need to have this book included in the Bible. In the second letter, John reminded the church of the preeminence of Christ and warned the church against those who would teach a diluted or distorted gospel. This third letter of John identifies the challenge that exists, I believe, when the preeminence of Christ within the church is replaced by the preeminence of man, especially within the leadership of a church. There are four people directly involved or directly addressed in this letter. Um, One is the Apostle John himself. Uh, Two are men that John would recommend as honorable men. Uh, One is Gaius and one is Demetrius. And a fourth man named Diostrophes. Diostrophes is a man of influence within a church. Uh, Yet there is something very wrong about his leadership. There is something very wrong about his, I'm going to call it, assumed authority. Which is why John writes this letter. John, the the disciple who wrote so much about love, actually describes this man's influence and this man's leadership in the church as evil. And while the letter identifies four people, I believe that the issue that John addresses in this church would have rippled through the entire church and perhaps crippled the church. And I think the potential for leadership at times to seek preeminence remains a threat within the church, and the church, which means you and me, need to be on guard. Don't allow the church whose cornerstone is Christ alone to come under human ownership. How does a church guard against too much control, too much authority, too much power, too much influence resting in one person? What is meant by authority in the church? Who does that authority rest in and where does that authority come from? And what happens in a church when things go wrong, when leadership goes wrong? 
Are there warning signs to be heeded? And I think John's letter, this third letter, addresses many of what I would call these church leadership questions. And the example of this man, Diostrophes, serves to highlight, I think, several warning signs. I want to assume that Diostrophes, in spite of all his weaknesses, with John certainly highlights, likely also exhibited some strengths or even gifts that would have given him influence within the church. That if he truly was an evil man, he would not likely have gained prominence in the church. So to paint this fellow as all bad is likely unfair. Undoubtedly, Diostrophes would have had his supporters in the church. And if these two, let's say, were people of influence, it's not difficult to see how a church can go sideways. How the church of Jesus Christ, in this case, I believe, became the church of Diostrophes. And it's a story, I think, too often repeated, even in the 21st century, where the preeminence of man within the church overshadows the preeminence of Jesus Christ. I think we need to note that this letter, this third letter of John, is not John's first attempt to contact, speak to, get a message to Diostrophes. It's clear that John has previously written to him, but that letter was either disregarded or perhaps destroyed. At the very least, the contents of the letter were ignored. That what John wrote to Diostrophes, Diostrophes chose to ignore, and that's why John says that he is going to pay this church and Diostrophes a personal visit. It's also clear from this letter that there were groups of Christian men and women who served as traveling teachers, preachers, we may say missionaries, people who had dedicated their life to proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as they traveled, they would visit established churches who would in turn show them hospitality. They would provide food, lodging, encouragement, and perhaps monetary gifts to help these travelers in their work. And John actually commends Gaius for showing this kind of hospitality, and his willingness to do so, I think, has contributed to his reputation as being a man of God. The hospitality is actually a practical demonstration of what it means to put others first. And I would say that spirit is still alive today within the church. Churches and individuals who willingly come alongside those who have dedicated their life to sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I want to say if hospitality is an expression of putting others first, it provides a powerful contrast to Diostrophes, who is described by John as one who loves to be first. He not only turns away 
these traveling missionaries, those who have dedicated their life to the gospel of Jesus Christ, he instructs the people of his church to do likewise. And when I say his church, I mean that quite literally. It would appear to me that Diostrophes has a firm grip on his church. And while that may create an appearance of strength, John says that his leadership, and I'm going to say again, his assumed authority were weaknesses to the point that John says they are actually evil. And we can, I guess, dismiss Diostrophes as kind of a one-off, just a really bad apple. But you know, I think there is within all of us someplace just below the surface and maybe perhaps not so far below the surface, an attitude that uh, we often too like to seek preeminence. We like to put ourselves first. And I think we need to be on guard against that attitude. But in this context, I think John is saying you need to be careful, you need to examine the practice of the church. I'm going to read the, the letter. It's, uh, it's quite short, I believe. It's up on the screen. Third John. This letter is written from John the Elder, and I'm writing to Gaius, my dear friend, whom I love in the truth. Dear friend, I hope all is well with you and that you are as healthy in body as you are strong in spirit. Some of the traveling teachers recently returned and made me very happy by telling me about your faithfulness and that you are living according to the truth. I could have no greater joy than to hear that my children are following the truth. Dear friend, you are being faithful to God when you care for the traveling teachers who pass through, even though they are strangers to you. And they have told the church here of your loving friendship, please continue providing for such teachers in a manner that pleases God. For they are traveling for the Lord, and they accept nothing from people who are not believers. So we ourselves should support them, so that we can be their partners as they teach the truth. I wrote to the church about this. But Diostrophes, who loves to be the leader, refuses to have anything to do with us. When I come, I will report some of the things he is doing and the evil accusations he is making against us. Not only does he refuse to welcome the traveling teachers, he also tells others not to help them. And when they do help, he puts them out of the church. Dear friend, don't let this bad example influence you. Follow only what is good. Remember that those who do good prove that they are God's children, and those who do evil prove that they do not know God. Everyone speaks highly of Demetrius, as does the truth itself. We ourselves can say the same for him, and you know we speak the truth. I have much more to say to you, but I don't want to write it with pen and ink, for I hope to see you soon, and then we will talk face to face. Peace be with you. Your friends here send their greetings. Please give my personal greetings to each of our friends there. It's a pretty kind of warm 
letter that he's writing to his friend, his brother in Christ, Gaius. And while he is, I'm going to say, supporting and saying, Gaius, well done, continue to do what you're doing, in the middle of this letter is this incredible caution about the man Diostrophes in his church. I'm going to suggest three aspects of Diostrophes' leadership that are troublesome. And I think there might be a slide for this, Carlene. I want to say the first and perhaps the most challenged telling is that he loves to be first. He loves to be in charge. The King James Version, I think, says, if I'm correct, he loveth to have preeminence. And I seldom have ever used the King James Version, but I actually, when I thought of that phrase, I thought, you know what, that phrase probably captures the truth perhaps better than any others. Loves to have preeminence. But no matter how you translate it within the church of God, it sounds bad because it is bad. In 1 Peter 5 verse 3, when talking about church leadership, Peter says this, And now a word to you who are elders in the churches. I too am an elder and a witness to the sufferings of Christ. And I too will share in his glory when he was revealed to the whole world. As a fellow elder, I appeal to you, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. In Matthew 20, verse 25, Jesus himself said this to his disciples, who I think probably had leadership aspirations in a worldly sense when they first met Jesus. And Jesus said to them, You know that the rulers in this world lord it over their people, and officials flaunt their authority over those under them, but among you it will be different. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant. Leadership, as I understand it, and as I read it in the New Testament, is a call to serve. I do not see any disclaimers, any exceptions, any small print. It does not say, well, unless you are on the board or unless you're the pastor. In fact, it is to those in leadership that this command to serve is focused and it contrasts, I think, what is often mistaken for leadership within the world. I think this letter is in the Bible because the church is sometimes guilty of giving lip service to this command while its practice indicates something different. Secondly, Diostrophes ignores the wise counsel of godly men, including that of John, an apostle set apart by Jesus himself. John, who talked so much about the church as a community characterized by love and mutual submission, is simply dismissed by Diotrephes. I think it's a problem within the church. 
In fact, rather than accept the wise counsel of John and others, he spreads lies about them, initiates rumors about those same people, I'm going to say hoping to solidify his assumed authority by attacking those whose authority is actually from God himself. I think it's a fair question to ask, how could a man like Diostrophes gain control of a church? You might ask, was nobody in that church paying attention? I think it's possible that Diostrophes may have initially displayed qualities, perhaps even gifts that seemed God-given and appealing But gradually, the opportunity or the desire for control, perhaps motivated by human pride, took over. And I think there's a clear warning that if church leadership is not rooted in humility, integrity, and character, it can easily default to a position of control and perhaps a misguided sense of authority. Thirdly, I would suggest that Diostrophe's followers were not motivated by a desire to follow his example, but perhaps from a sense of fear and apprehension. It says that those who did not heed his authority, Diostrophe's threatened to throw out of his church. Whether he actually did so or whether this was simply a threat, I think the end result is exactly the same. Fear. The church is a relational organism. It's a gathering of families. It's a gathering of friends. It's a gathering of brothers and sisters in Christ. Ostracize or threaten to kick out those who oppose your leadership, and you will have a blind but faithful following of manipulated people. People who fall in line because they feel trapped. And I think it's a trademark of many religious organizations, the fear that to speak up or to question could find you separated from those you love. I think Diostrophes had this kind of control over his church. Don't welcome travelers. Don't listen to John. If you do, you'll be on the outside. I think perhaps this is what John saw as especially evil within his leadership. I want to say it's the opposite of what the church is called to be. Jesus said the truth, the good news of Jesus Christ shall set you free. And when we gather, we are called to celebrate our oneness. We're called to celebrate our unity. I believe we are called to celebrate our freedom in Christ. And we acknowledge that Jesus is the head of his church. And we are called, every one of us, to submit to one another in love, regardless of where or how we serve within the church of God. I think it's interesting that the dysfunction of this church is not about doctrine. At least John doesn't identify doctrine as being the issue. He doesn't say that Diostrophes is a false teacher. He doesn't say that he's preaching something that we need to be wary of. 
which I think is why it's possible that people in that church may have continued to fall in line. The issue is actually one of welcoming travelers, traveling missionaries, men and women who have dedicated their life to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's about the church not being willing to show love in a very practical way. And as I read this account, I couldn't help wondering, why, why is it that Diostrophes would object to welcoming brothers and sisters who have dedicated their life to the gospel of Jesus Christ? They are not likely going to take up permanent residence in his church. They are likely just passing through. They are not likely going to pose a threat to his leadership, although I guess they could have the potential of carrying news about his church back to John and other church leaders. And although John does not state this, I think it's very possible that Diostrophes' desire for control over his church may have spilled over into a desire to also control the funds of the church, to welcome other people, to feed, to house, and to contribute to their welfare would likely have included monetary help, and Diostrophes may have preferred that that money stay within his church and under his control, that his desire to have preeminence may very well have had a financial aspect to it. So when I read John 3 and I ask, what is there for us as a church to learn from this letter? And I want to highlight three aspects that I think are critical to biblical church leadership. And you may certainly choose different headings. You may see things slightly differently. But I've, I've simply chosen these three because they stood out to me as I thought about Diostrophes and his leadership. Firstly, I believe church leadership needs to be collaborative and not authoritarian. Church leadership needs to seek out, to value, and to heed the wise counsel of godly brothers and sisters. I think it's interesting that even in the business or corporate world, the wisdom of collaborative leadership, in many cases, is seen to pay far greater dividends than the voice of one. In the church, we are called to test all things. We're called to examine all things. We're called to bring every thought captive to Jesus Christ. And it's not a task given to one person. It's a task given to all of us within the church. Different church organizations or denominations adopt different models of church governance. But I would say most churches have as their goal a model that serves to safeguard the integrity of the church through some form of shared accountability. When I think of the early church, it obviously was not guided by denominational distinctions. But neither were they a collection of isolated, independent churches. It seems to me as I read the New Testament, the writings of Paul and Peter, James and John, 
that the New Testament churches looked to the letters of Paul, to James, Peter, and John for guidance, clarification, and at times for redirection. That if churches were struggling or going sideways in terms of doctrine, in terms of corporate worship, or in terms of lifestyle, Paul and other apostles reminded them of what the church was called to be and what that was to look like when the church gathers and what that's to look like when we live our faith out in the world. And I would say for the most part, the early church was willing to be held accountable to the guidance, encouragement, counsel, of the apostles and other godly men. Not so Diostrophes. You know, today denominational distinctives are often criticized as being a bit confusing and somewhat counterproductive. And I understand that criticism. Yet I think those distinctions often merely reflect a different emphasis, sometimes a different perspective on things that are not make or break issues in terms of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as I've said before, our gathering at Creekside crosses many denominational boundaries. Many. And I see that as a strength. Yet we do sit here as a church that identifies as Mennonite brethren. For some people, that label means a lot. Uh, For others, it means very little, and for some, perhaps, when I mention it, they start feeling a bit uncomfortable. I am going to mention it a bit this morning. For me, that label means a lot, and I would say that I'm glad that we operate within the context of a larger denominational framework, because I believe that framework helps and serves to hold us accountable in terms of what we believe. So you might say in terms of our doctrine. It helps to hold us accountable in how we live that out, how our faith, how we are called to live a transformed life and what that should look like. And I believe that it serves as a safeguard from churches falling prey to the preeminence of one man. In North America, and perhaps this is more evident in the U.S. than in Canada, we we continue to see the rise of, I'll simply call them independent churches. Churches who would say they have no denominational affiliation. And this independence is often phrased as being freeing, as being positive. We are independent so we can do whatever God has asked us to do without having to answer to any other body. I am not sure that this is necessarily a strength. What is often true of independent churches is that they do rely heavily on the leadership of one person. And often that leadership is passed on to members of the immediate family. I am not convinced that it is healthy, and I think it would be very interesting to gain Paul's, Peter's, or John's perspective. 
The Anabaptist movement, of which the Mennonite brethren are one branch, hold to a firm belief that the church is a priesthood of all believers, that God speaks into the lives of men and women regardless of their function or their role within the church, regardless of their education, regardless of their economic status or influence, that God speaks into each one of us. Authority in the church does not lie in the pastor. Authority does not lie in the board. It lies in the collective discernment of the people of God as they study the word of God and as they pray as a people. While significant responsibility is placed on a board or on a senior pastor, ultimate authority over the church lies in Jesus Christ, who by his spirit speaks into the lives of ordinary men and women who then speak into the church. Some see this, you might say, grassroots version of church authority as a weakness. I see it as a safeguard and a strength. And I see it as biblical. That was number one, and it was way too long. Two and three are, are shorter. Secondly, I think leadership within the church demands both gifting and godly character. And I heard this from another pastor, so I do not want to take, (laughs) I could say credit or blame, but it resonated with me. He said, gifting, calling, charisma, success never trumps integrity and character. That without godly character and integrity, gifting can easily amount to a lot of noise. And Paul speaks, I think, to that so directly in Corinthians. Church leadership requires the gifting of the Spirit of God reflected in a life that exhibits the fruits of the Spirit of God. And in this book, John commends two people, Gaius and Demetrius. Not because they are referred to as leaders, but because they are men of integrity and character. John encourages us to live like those men. We know little of them. Except it says Gaius was a man that showed hospitality. And John warns of those in leadership who place themselves above others. John warns of those who may make spiritual claims about their own life in order to gain a following. John would say, listen to and follow Gaius and Demetrius. And I thought, you know, they may well be those people who stand up and speak in a church family meeting, share a word from God for the church. And it's this perspective on church life and on church leadership that the Mennonite brethren embrace, and I would say guard. Gifting and character, and lastly, and I alluded to this earlier, leadership within the church needs to be reflected in people who humbly embrace a servant heart as a calling, not as an option. 
There's no higher example of this humility than that of Jesus who was willing to become a servant to all, who was willing to die for the sins of the world. And when Paul calls us to love and submit to one another, no one is excluded from that calling. No one is exempted. It applies across the board. You might say it applies to the board. It is crucial to the oneness, the unity, and the freedom that we are to enjoy as a family of God. It's my prayer that we would be willing to be that kind of people. Wherever we serve, whatever function we serve within the church, that we see our calling as one to be a servant to all. Occasionally, we may need to pause and acknowledge our own tendency at times to, to want to have preeminence. And we need to be willing to give that up for the sake of the church and the kingdom of God. I want to close with um, a few verses from Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20 to 22. I, I like this. To me, it talks so much about togetherness that we are to demonstrate as the church of God. Together we are his house. That's who we are this morning. We are his house built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, and the cornerstone is Christ himself. We are carefully joined together in him, becoming a holy temple for the Lord. And in him you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. I want to say may we guard the preeminence of Jesus Christ in his church. May we lift him up and serve him by willingly serving one another. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I want to say thank you for this short letter that John wrote to the church. And Father, while it may be easy to throw stones at diostrophes, I think the message of this book is for us to examine our church. That, Father, it's a call for us to examine our lives, and so often, Father, the desire to have preeminence, to be in charge is not that far away. So, Father, I pray for our church even here at Creekside. Father, would we continue whatever role we serve in this church, Father, to do it from a joyful, a thankful, a servant heart. Father, may we heed the words of Jesus who said, if you want to be first, you have to be willing to be last and be a servant to all. Father, would you help us do that within the context of our church? Thank you for your presence here. By the Spirit of God, we are being built into a holy temple for yourself. Thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.